0: learning to paint in pre-modern China to discuss uh, the Met's latest uh, classical Chinese painting exhibition. I have on today the curator, Joe Shire-Jalberg, returning to China Talk for the second time. Thanks so much for c- coming
1: on and being a part of the show, Joe. Oh, it's great to be back, Jordan. Thanks. All right. We're doing a
0: audio walkthrough, um, talking through some of the um, uh, the real standout paintings that uh, you chose to exhibit Um uh, for the spring rotation, uh, we're going to make a YouTube video out of this. China Talk now has a YouTube channel, um, which I think would probably be the better way to experience this conversation because then you'll be able to look at the paintings as we're talking about them. So, if, uh, as we're talking about them. So, just uh, search China Talk on YouTube, and you will find um, our channel. So, Joe, what was the vision of this exhibition?
1: Well, so you know, the exhibition "Learning to Paint in Premodern China" I basically organized. This very simple idea, this very simple question, namely, if you were a young kid, born in pre-modern China, you know, Song Yuan Mingqing, and you found you had artistic talent, how would you go about cultivating that talent and really mastering your craft as a painter? And, you know, based on the artworks available to me for the show, I divided it along four categories, Um, learning from family, learning from friends learning from manuals, that is to say painting manuals. And then finally, and most abstractly, learning from the past, because as we know, you know, many pre-modern Chinese painters were continually inspired to innovate and transform what they found in the canon as it, you know, as it came to them uh, from earlier Chinese art. So that's how the show is arranged. And as you walk through, you get a few different slices on each, uh, each of those uh, types of learning. So,
0: you know, a, a lot of the there are a lot of lineages in Chinese painting where you have like a father, son, uh, grandson uh, who sort of all end up taking this up as if it's like a family craft or something. But every once in a while you get these stories where like some guy or some like not really a guy, some like seven year old is just like discovered and then sort of like adopted into a family. Um, How does that Happen like what? What are, are? Can you share some of the anecdotes of um uh, of folks who who sort of like broke in without any um uh, any any direct connection to uh, famous painters?
1: You know, we often find in biographies of painters, and this is true also for biographies of scholars. Stories that sound very similar. You know, say by the age of four, he was able to paint an image of Guan Yin that wowed uh, locals in his hometown, or or something like that. Um, Chun Hong Shou comes to mind as one of those, but uh, generally, uh, and the painter that I studied uh, for my doctoral dissertation seems to be sort of sui generis, A guy named Yu Ding. he he seems to have just shown talent, and then uh, local people who love painting, whether they're collectors or painters themselves, seem to discover these guys. Uh, you know, the ones who come down to us through history, who who gained famous painters, and so that's usually the way, and oftentimes. Um, we find that the the things they're they're said to have painted earlier, you know, maybe religious images, the kind of things that would be available in kind of daily life.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you have this image of uh, Chinese landscape painting as like this this like epitome of elite art, where you can only learn it by owning lots of uh really expensive paintings by past masters, and it's you know this multi decade journey. To, um, you know, to get to a place where you can sort of be uh, considered part of that canon. But um, it is interesting, these little lore, these little like discovery stories, because it means that there was, you know, popular art. Um, and it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just these um, uh, these 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 gentlemen scholars doing it because there had to be like a big pool of people like playing around with ink and, um, uh, and ink and paper in order for some folks to really stand out.
1: Absolutely. The third section of the show, the learning from manuals part, you know, admittedly, we begin the show with that elite literati tradition, people who had access to the very best through their family, um, through their friends. But then you get to the third section and, and you know, especially starting in the late Ming, uh, the you know 17th century, you start to have painting manuals and you can go to the bookstore and you can sort of buy your way into at least like a kind of a a way to open the door to that elite tradition. Uh, if you have a few coppers in your pocket, you can buy the Mustard Seed Garden Manual. You can buy the Ten Bamboo Studio if you have a few more coppers in your pocket and uh, gain access to that tradition without uh, knowing Wang Min or or, or knowing Nitzan or whomever.
0: Is there like folk art that's a thousand years old on scrolls that survives?
1: folk art that old I, I struggle to think of what it would be you know in in the dunhuang the discoveries from the dunhuang cave we have some images that are probably the, the closest we could get to that you know religious images uh not made as necessarily elite art traditions uh but which were important as teaching tools brought by our itinerant monks and mm. so you have uh illustrated sutras and that kind of thing very precious uh, but not uh, elite art per se.
0: Interesting. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take our little tour then. So we walk into the first room, and to your right, there are three horses. What's the story behind this uh, fantastic piece?
1: This first gallery of the show is where I introduced the concept of learning from family, and to really try to crystallize that for the audience, I wanted to do a, a really in-depth case study of a single family. And the family I most wanted to do this with and which it wasn't obvious that I necessarily could with the works in the collection um, was the family of Zhao Mengfu and Guan Daosheng. This is the most famous power couple in Chinese painting history. Um, And thanks to loans from a couple private collections, I was able to uh, bring together in this one room works uh, not only by Zhao Mengfu and Guan Daosheng, the power couple themselves, but also by um, their son Zhao Yong, by his son, Zhao Lin, and then by a grandson on the other side of the family, Wang Meng. Uh, and in fact, the, one of the Wang Meng works was made for their great-grandson. Uh, that Wang Meng made it for his first cousin, once removed. But the, the work that really put this idea in my head, the notion of uh, an artwork that uh, sort of encapsulates the transmission of an artistic tradition across generations is the one you're referring to, the so-called three horses and grooms of the Zhao family. So this is an artwork um, that begins in the mid-13th century when Zhao Menghu, this sort of towering and very versatile artist figure, painter, calligrapher, scholar from Wuxing in the South, who went North during the Yuan dynasty to serve uh, Kublai Khan, the emperor of China um, in Beijing, he, he paints, you know, a fairly straightforward image of a horse and a groom, straightforward on the face of it. But as as we'll see, it's a really innovative, um, not to say revolutionary painting of a horse and groom. What makes the hand scroll uh, into a sort of uh, intergenerational artifact is that later, uh, it was, you know, 50 some odd years later, it was shown to his son Zhao Yong. And Zhao was asked to contribute his own horse and groom painting. Zhao Young had studied painting with his father and mother. And so he added a horse and groom. And then two months after that, his son, Zhao Lin, was asked to contribute his own horse and groom. And so we get his three horses and grooms by three uh, members of the Zhao family in succession. And so, like, these are different is it all on one scroll and they only,
0: and like the the son and the grandson only had one shot or are they sort of glued together? Like how does, how does it physically, how did it physically work?
1: You know, it began its life as just a single painting, a Zhao Mengfu painting on a piece of paper. And then that was mounted to a hand scroll. And then later additional pieces of paper were added after Zhao Yong and Zhao Lin made their own scrolls. And so you'll see the seams in the paper when you get there. And this is a kind of iterative process that's theoretically Limitless, and you will see composite artworks on hand scrolls like that. And then, when when we talk about the idea of colophons or t the the calligraphy that's mounted uh, after the paintings or sometimes before, um, that's another way to sort of extend the life and the scope of a hand scroll. And as I say, the scope is potentially infinite. You can just keep adding and adding with each remounting.
0: Well, well, we'll get to this. The um uh, the seventy feet. Uh, is it seventy feet?
1: Yeah, right. all
0: right. Well, well, let, a little later in the show, we'll talk about a seventy feet long piece that will that um uh, is a real showstopper. But I do want to stay on the Jiamung Fu horse for a second. So it's on in this like really weird three quarter pose. It's very sort of bulbous. Um, what um uh, uh what, what's so remarkable about this uh uh this animal for you?
1: You know, Zhao Mengfu was uh, slotting himself or basically joining up with the tradition of horse painting that goes back to the Tang Dynasty. There are all these famous horse painters, and he would have known them and studied their works. And oftentimes, the horses that they paint for us are painted in profile. You know, we see the whole body of the horse stretched out in all its power and majesty. And, um, you know, Zhao Mengfu could have done that. Uh, but what he's done here is he's turned the horse in a way, you know, 3 uh, three-quarter profile to us so that... What he's required to do is foreshorten the body of the horse, and he chooses to do that in this strikingly geometric way, where you get, you know, a perfect half circle for the rump of the horse, and then a nested, uh, perfect uh, partial circle for its haunch. And you know, he's he's sort of upping the difficulty for himself. He's requiring himself to present a, a, a higher level of three dimensionality, and it's a start routine with a. With a higher value for him, uh, so that's mm-hmm. you know something striking that he's chosen to do geometrically, and to challenge himself as a painter and show that he's doing something something new. Uh, let's talk
0: about the mane for a second. It's this really striking like contrast of of of, of white on the top and then black as it um, sort of like falls down. What do you think is going on there?
1: Yeah, it's basically a two tone mane, as you say. Um, The lighter part at the top is described just by negative space, that is to say the blank paper untouched by ink. And then the bottom part is described by this combination of wet and dry brushwork that creates a real feeling, a tactile feeling of hairiness of the mane. Describing the upper edge of the mane are these little chatter marks of light ink. And so, you know, you could look at this mane as simply, you know, one of these variations of horsehair. Uh, where the top part is light and the bottom part is dark. But, you know, what I've come to see it as and what I think is a really exciting possibility is that he's depicting a very glossy, shiny black mane of a horse where the upper part is reflecting the light back at us and uh, the bottom part is just showing off the sort of glossy black quality. And what makes that so striking is that, uh, you know, famously in Chinese painting, the play of light is diminished if you were to compare it with, uh, say, European painting of the same or later period, where there's this real interest in fixed light source and bright shadow and reflectivity uh, and reflections. In Chinese painting, generally, artists tend to depict everything as if it's under a heavy diffusing filter. And so the light is extremely even. You don't get reflections. You don't get shadows. That's seen as, um, you know, it's kind of dirty. It's a little off a strange way to paint, but John Monfu's clearly, clearly interested in that optical effect here and paints it in a a very unusual and very eye-catching way. Um, So there's this,
0: you know, kind of awkwardness when you have three generations and you're going to compare them. And like this, this, this sort of three quarter horse is like a, you know, absolute classic. Like the Met put it on its, uh, on the cover of it's like, what is Chinese uh, painting book? Uh, And the other two are, I don't know, a little more forgettable, I guess, Um, you know, and this is sort of a tricky thing with these with these generations is often, you know, you have one that's a real standout and either the, you know, the dad or the son doesn't end up quite delivering um, what the um, uh, the most famous person in the family was able to was able to achieve.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to be born into a famous family where not only your your father but your mother are both famous painters and calligraphers, and you know there's a gift to that, but there's also a burden that comes with it. And I think when you look at these images by Chao Yong and Chao Lin, you can feel that burden a little bit. I, I only realized once the first two rooms were installed that it's um, it's a lot of pressure to put on these um, these sons and nephews and grandsons and. Sometimes daughters who follow in the footsteps of famous parents. I mean, I think I would say about the Zhao Young painting and the Chaolin Lin painting, the son and the grandson, we would love each of these paintings, and each of them would be an absolute showstopper if we only had them. Um, mm. But because we know Zhao Mengfu's level of accomplishment, we see them all mounted up in the same scroll. You can see by comparison that Zhao Yong is doing something a little bit more conventional. You know, I talked about that idea of. Responding to the horse painting tradition of showing the entire horse in profile. So you see the majesty of the body. I mean, that's what Zhao Yong is doing. He's building upon a tradition from Han Gan to Li Gonglin uh, to other painters before him, and he's doing it really well. He's not pushing the envelope the way that his father did. Um, likewise, I think I would say, you know, Zhao Lin, the grandson. You know, as the as water pressure gets heavier, the deeper you go in the ocean. I think a similar thing is happening to him. He's <laughs> feeling the pressure a little bit. You know, Zhao Mengfu paints his in 1296, uh, Zhao Yong in 1359, and then it's uh, the grandson Zhao Lin two months later in 1359, the collector comes to him and says, you know, I want to collect them all. Uh, I'd like to have your horse and groom. And his is a bit more conventional still. There's a bit less vitality in the human figure. Than I think you see in Zhao Mengfu's and in Zhao Yong's even, and maybe a little bit more convention in the depiction of the horse.
0: Um, yeah, not everyone can be brawny James. Um,
1: Joe, <laughs> th- th- there's something with
0: like Asian or, or just like Chinese art critique in particular where I feel like Chinese like curators of Chinese art are a little more comfortable saying like this is a good painting and this is a less good painting versus Western, you know, nineteenth and twentieth century art where that's like. I don't know if it's like a PC thing or not. I mean, I think in the, you know, in the 17th, 18th centuries, you'd have these, you know, contests and they give out like first, second, third prize, right? And the, you know,
1: expositions. Um, what is, am I, am I to something here? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, Jordan, the whole idea of talking about quality has become outrageous. You know, it's an outrageous idea, um, you know, in academic art history. And I think it's sort of, it links up to this very old practice of what we call, you know, in in English, we would call it connoisseurship. and It's not what proper scholars are supposed to do anymore. You know, we're supposed to be about ideas, even in the so-called, in recent years with the so-called material turn, where people have turned back to the artwork and looked at it very closely. The idea of sitting around, you know, you envision kind of like a dark wood paneled uh, kind of uh, drawing room with leather sofas or chairs and just a bunch of blowhards holding forth about this is good and that's bad. You know, this is not what we want to do, but I would say there's this parallel tradition in um, in Chinese language scholarship and in China of what we call jian ding, you know, appreci- appreciation and authentication. You know, where uh, and this is something that goes right back into the colophons where you see people arguing about authenticity and quality and debates about authenticity go back to the fourth century uh, CE at least. And I think that there's a little bit more comfort in Chinese language and in those of us who are constantly in discussions with our colleagues in East Asia um, talking about the, the dirty word connoisseurship or tian Ding. So yeah, maybe there is more of a comfort level in, um, in the scholarship on Chinese painting of saying, yeah, like this painting is better than that painting. Maybe if I were really behaving myself, I would say something like, You know this painting adheres to the canons of brushwork that we expect from, uh, you know, painters at a certain quality. But your podcast only has so many minutes in it, and your your listeners only have so much patience for my shenanigans. So um, I'll just stick with good old good and bad, maybe. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program,
0: the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive
1: through Project Up, Comcast is committing one billion
0: dollars to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a
1: future of unlimited possibilities
0: um so I want to talk about the uh the husband and wife painting, which is one of the one of the more striking ones what i'm um, uh, you know. It's so cute, Zhao Mengfu. You know, he didn't like his first wife all that much, I guess. So his second one, he decides to take a um, uh, um, you know, a real estee.
1: Yeah, if I understand the story correctly, I think Zhao Mengfu's first wife passed away young, and so he's looking, oh, yeah, he's looking okay, for a okay, new okay. wife. A different know. dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I want to, you know, in defense of my of my friend Zhao Mengfu, but um, you know, as it so happened, there was you know Zhao Mengfu is from Wuxing in the south, and it so happened there was a famous young woman uh, who lived in Wuxing, also who is famous for her scholarship um, and for her training in the scholarly arts. She was born, this is Guan Dao Sheng, who becomes a second wife and the mother of the children that we, whose paintings we see in this gallery and grandchildren. Um, she was born to a family that didn't have any sons in her generation. And so it seems that they poured all of their commitment to scholarship that was their family tradition into training her. Uh, And so she, you know, she gained a background in, uh, you know, sort of the classical tradition, and she gained training as a calligrapher, and she took up painting as well. Now, Zhang Mengfu is famously versatile. You might say, I don't know, maybe the most versatile um, elite painter in pre-modern Chinese history. He painted everything, figures, horses, um, landscapes of all different types, etc., Buddhist figures. And uh, Guan Dao on the contrary, was a specialist. She painted ink bamboo pretty much alone, although it seems that she also uh, painted ink bamboo in landscape, that seems to have been her specialization. What we have in the galleries right now, and this is an incredibly rare opportunity for the next week or so, um, while this rotation of the show is up for visitors to see, because this is uh, an artwork from a private collection and it pairs a painting of a rock and orchids, uh, by Zhao Mengfu with a painting of ink bamboo by Guan Dao Shong, And they've been mounted together as a kind of composite artwork since at least the 14th century from around, let's say, like 50 years after the death of of these painters. And so it's a, a remarkable artwork. It shows, you know, facets of both of them and also is a kind of crystallization of their, of this companionate marriage that was based in a shared communication around art it's really amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, this is not like super common. I think in the um, in the Ming Dynasty, right? Ming, right? Yuan. Yeah. Sorry. Um, you know, like like you know, relationships of equality and respect between men and women is not something that's like super common. I'd imagine in um, sort of elite uh, Yuan Dynasty families. So to to see this just represented it on. Um, uh, on ink and paper is just like a really,
1: you know, a really precious thing. I oh, absolutely. I mean, I think these are the sorts of things um, that feminist scholarship of the last 30 years or so have really brought to our attention is that if you go looking for them, you will find a broader range of types of relationships, um, you know, levels of participation in elite society among women who are scholars. And we see interesting examples in the Yuan and then increasingly into the late Ming and then in the Qing. I wouldn't say the floodgates open, but you get more and more women participating in a public way. But Guan Daosheng was really special. I mean, she made an impression in Wuxing in the South before they went to the capital. And then when she and Zhao Mengfu went to the capital, they were kind of the toast of the town. I mean, he's this big swashbuckling guy full of all these talents. And she's this strikingly talented uh, woman painter, calligrapher, scholar. And, you know, they were honored for their accomplishments by uh, by the court. And they definitely made a big impression on people. Let's talk
0: about the Wang Hui and Wang Sherman paintings you have.
1: Hmm. Right. So we're transitioning here from the section on learning from family into the one about learning from friends. But, you know, what folks will see when they come to the exhibition is that these categories are porous and, you know, there's plenty of family in the friends section and vice versa. But you know what we have here is a remarkable album painted by Wang Hui, who was sort of the most celebrated landscape painter of the early Qing. Uh, painted for his mentor Wang Shimin, who was uh, an elite scholar, painter, calligrapher, etc. You know, a wundern literatus who studied with Dong Qichang, the great painter, calligrapher, theorist of the late Ming, and was. Dong Qichang's chosen inheritor of his legacy. So Wang Shemin has all this knowledge and direct experience of uh, the most influential literati painter as his teacher, and he hands that down to his students, uh, one of the most important of whom was Wang Hui. Now, we talked about this idea of like talented artists being discovered. Wang Hui was one of those. He was born to a professional painting family, so he got painting training at home but not for the kind of literati landscape painting that he went on to produce. He was discovered by Wang Shemin's friend, Wang Jian, and and then was pulled into this circle of Wang Shemin and got kind of trained up on how to not just do painting, but how to do literati landscape painting. And this album from 1674, it preserves 10 leaves of of what we think was a 12-leaf album that he made for his teacher, who at that, Wang Shemin, who at that point was in his 80s, and so you see Wang Hui here really pulling out all the stops to impress his teacher. I mean, this is, you know, your teacher never stops being your teacher no matter how old you get, and you. I think for most of us, you never stop wanting to impress your teacher, and you can feel him putting his whole heart into each leaf of this album, and and it's very much um, the type of album that these guys in this circle, the so-called Orthodox school, made for each other. Each Li has Wang Hui uh, basically painting in a different old master style. So, you know Li Cheng of the 10th century or Zhao Mengfu. He's painting in Zhao Mengfu style, 13th century, 14th century, and he's basically showing off his mastery of the whole canon to his teacher, saying, "See, I I listened, I got it, and I've transformed it into my own personal style." So that's great. We have those ten leaves, but what we also have are two leaves from an album that Wang Shemin, the teacher, made in response and, uh, you know, presumably sent back to Wang Hui or at least showed to Wang Hui. And so we get to compare the the teacher's work made in his 80s with the student's work made in his 40s.
0: And, you know, let's come back to that quality discussion. There's there's really something about the master's paintings which just stands out a little more than um, uh, the student's that's trying so hard to show that he's a um, He's up to snuff like can you try to describe the um uh, you know we have these two sort of like wintry scenes um but one is just a little richer
1: yeah i've put them side by side so visitors to the gallery can compare and contrast and see what they think i can describe it as i see it and then hopefully you know uh you know bring your headphones and listen in the gallery and see if if you see it this way maybe you see it differently but the wang hui which is on the right i would describe as showing a lot of polish um, it's very clean. There's not a, a brush mark out of place. I think what the Wang mean to the left has, this is the teacher's painting, again, made in his 80s. It has a certain quality that uh, we, we talk about a bit in the Chinese painting, appreciation and connoisseurship, which is a certain type of gravitas or depth of experience, a kind of I don't know, a a kind of weight where you can feel the accumulated experience of the artist. It's less focused on cleanliness. Uh, The brushstrokes are a little bit less cautious, but in that there is a supreme kind of naturalness. I mean, you might think of this, there's a term that comes into extensive use in the Northern Song and continues to be used called pingdan, the even and light. Um, There's an avoidance of beauty as such. And and what you see instead is just an absolute ease and comfort and naturalness. And I think that's, that's what we see in the Wong mean and, you know, something that you can't force, you can't fake it in your forties. You got to wait sometimes until your eighties.
0: Yeah. The, the the sort of only other experience like this I've had in a gallery was in in Florence where you have the you know Brunelleschi and Gilberti both trying to make their sacrifice of Isaac to sort of like win over the judges to get the commission to make the door um to the chapel to make the, to make the big bronze door but yeah, of course. um but um uh, you know the dynamic here is just is so it's like almost even more interesting because it's not like these two like young bucks like competing for like a lot of money it's like the master going back to his students and saying like I know you're really good. I respect you. I think you're great, but you still got this to learn. And it, there's something like very like, you know, lovely and wholesome about, about um, uh, them both taking on the same, um uh, same thing. And I'm sure the student, as soon as he saw the master's painting, recognized it and was like, Ooh, okay. You're not back to the drawing board, but like, all right, I still, i um, uh, you know, I'm still on this path.
1: Yeah. Time to stay in the woodshed. There's like, there's an album. I don't remember the whole personnel, but it's basically like, uh, I think it's Thelonious Monk and Charles Mingus, and I forget who's on drums, but they they did an album with Duke Ellington. And, you know, like Duke Ellington's the king. He's this elder statesman, but he's also a little more conservative, like within a bebop context. And he comes in and he just goes ham on all of them. And you can tell that they're like, wow, the old guy can still cook. Um, I think that there's something similar here where it's like, you know, there's a quality that you gain through experience. Um, that I think you know certain artistic traditions really value, and Chinese painting and calligraphy certainly values it.
0: Yeah, and you have a really beautiful sort of coda to this relationship um, in one of the cards where um, uh, Wang Hui uh, sort of comes across this album forty years later as he visits the grandson of his former teacher Wang Shimin, and he writes, um, he writes you know on the colophon. So again, this is like you know the piece of. Calligraphy that you kind of like glue on to the rest of it. He says, In 1647, when Master Wang Sharmin asked me to do this album, he was 83. Um, that was forty years ago. I am now eighty-three. The master's grandson has taken this out to show me, examining again my earlier inscriptions done so many years ago, I am overwhelmed with sadness and feel that the bonds of brush and ink connect
1: me with three generations of the Wang family. Cannot have been an accident. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very emotional. It's sort of a typically emotional for a colophon where he really lays it all out. And that this was another um, one of those artworks that really made me think that the concept for the show, this idea of learning to paint and thinking about family and friends, that we could really um, get, get the idea across even to an audience and maybe coming to this anew. He's so frank about it. You know, I, I did this when I was young for my teacher who was old now I'm old and I'm having an emotional response to thinking about the transmission and the relationship across time of art as a shared language of communication. It's like, okay, <laughs> we get it. We hear you, Wong You can often glean all sorts of information from colophons, and, and sometimes you get a depth of feeling like this, but it's rarely this straightforward and and this deep where he's expressing a feeling of being moved by seeing the artwork of his teacher paired with his own artwork made for his teacher. And he says, you know, I am emotionally moved by this experience. I mean, I think we as viewers often get emotionally moved by artwork, but to have the artist himself tell us that he was moved by the experience and it made him think of this human relationship, it's its quite amazing. Was this uh ya did he paint also? Yeah, they're, they're all... um in that family, everybody's a painter. Okay.
0: So, I mean, you know, we, we we were talking about families earlier. Like, kind of down the generations, I guess you just, like, it just starts to be a trade and, like, you have some, like, market value just because, like, you're someone's kid. Oh. um, or, or you also probably, you know, get the head start of, like, you know your grandpa like traded paintings with everyone. So you have this collection that you can sort of build off, build your skills off of.
1: Yeah, those are sort of the two sides of it. I mean, if you're a professional painter, oftentimes, yeah, it's, it's handed down like Wang Hui, if he had stayed with his dad, he made, maybe would have become a professional painter and, you know, made money from painting um, more explicitly and more in the marketplace than he ended up doing. But descendants of Wang Shemin, and we'll talk about Wang Yanxi eventually as an example of this. Um, yeah, that's more uh passing down the family tradition and you get an enormous leg up uh by by having access to the best as a kid.
0: Just like a Clinton running for president, but you're a painter from the Ming dynasty. Um uh Dong Qichang going into the next room.
1: What a weird one. Mm. Super weird one. What's going on here? Well Dong Chichang um is the revolutionary painter of the late 16th and early 17th centuries. And aesthetically, he is very interested in disjuncture, in discomfort, in off-kilter angles and landscape forms. And this is an excellent example of that. I mean, Dong Chi Chang is the fountainhead of this whole tradition that becomes known as the Orthodox school. And he's obsessed with old paintings. He's buying them, he's looking at them, he's interpreting them, and he's creating new works in response. But his works don't look like the old works. They look like, often they look like this one, fractured, cubist, um, strange, as you say. And it's one of the things that people who love Dong Chi love. And it's definitely one of the things that people who really don't like Dong Chi don't like. But he, um, where he places his elegance is very much in something that will probably not be evident on the, the viewer's screen right now, but is in the materials. He was obsessed with paper. He's obsessed with ink. Um, All of that is fastidious and really um, kind of lovingly um, prepared and applied and just almost fetishistic in how fine the materials are. But if you look at composition, it's always off kilter. So going into the
0: next room, we are sort of moving forward in time a little bit and people... um... A little democratizing, like you get to start learning out of books instead of, you know, spending the equivalent of millions of dollars on uh paintings from hundreds of years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, the literati tradition is not just elite, but elitist specifically. And, you know, increasingly, we're finding ways in the galleries to kind of like display vernacular art. Explain why it's interesting. Um, but I will, you know, I will- But make, is it really <laughs> that interesting? Oh, no. Come on. No, no. it's great. I, I'll make a strong <laughs> argument for vernacular <laughs> art any day, but it just so happens that with this show, it is totally solipsistic literati art in the first few galleries. You know, I just leaned right into that in part because when it comes to learning from family, learning from friends, those are the stories I have to tell. But yeah, we're throwing the doors wide open uh, in the Francis Young Tan Gallery. It's Gallery 213 at the back of the Horseshoe of Galleries, the suite of galleries, and this is called learning from manuals. And it zooms in on this moment in the 17th century when painting manuals start to be printed in great numbers. And yeah, you could go down to the bookstore, you had some copper cash, and exchange it for these printed books that had not just explaining um, explanatory text, but also images. So, if you don't know Wang Xiumin, you don't know Dong Qichang, you don't know Wang Chi, you can gain access to what old paintings are supposed to look like. And, um, you know, it's never going to be as fancy um, or as, um, you know, specific as what you're going to get from a real painting. But the reproductions and multiples became really important.
0: Yeah. So we were talking earlier about the prints um, and and how these were sort of woodblock books and, you know, the the sort of... If if anyone has a chance to go to a um uh a uh a museum and look at traditional Chinese painting, like the magic is just looking at the gradients of gray and the quality of the of the ink and whatnot, and like that's not, it's kind of hard to do with like a mass-produced thing. But as you said, like um you know we were looking at the um uh these these leaves from the um uh. uh Palace of the
1: Mustard garden? Yeah, Mustard Seed Garden Manual. M- yeah. Mustard
0: Seed Garden Manual, and you would have um, at least two
1: colors. Would they try to do like a light gray and a dark gray, which is you know better than nothing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you if you're trying to learn how to paint and you have access only to line and not at all to wash, um, you're going to end up probably pretty limited as a painter. So the you know technology of woodblock printing is quite versatile and quite advanced by the 17th century, and so you know through multiple woodblocks. Uh, printers are able to mimic the effect of both wash and line. And then on the other side of the gallery, you get um, even multicolor printing.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about this like pear and rock. Um, Mm -hmm. Super cool, super modern looking. Um, uh, What's the story behind this one?
1: Yeah, this is from the Shu Shuhua Pu. So the 10 Bamboo Studio Manual of um, Painting and Calligraphy. And Uh, This is the earliest successful attempt at uh, multi-block, multi-color woodblock printing in East Asia. And we have uh, a kind of mixed set of prints that were uh, acquired a long, long time ago, um, but very seldom shown. And here I've brought out a selection of those. I mean, these are a little different from the Jeju and the Mustard Seed Garden Manual. Um, You know, they're a little bit more of kind of like a luxury collectible in their own right, but you could conceivably use them to learn how to paint some of these rock uh, and um, fruit subjects, flower subjects. Um, it's rich in both of those kind of bird and flower type subjects. It's very rich in that. It's not a landscape collection, though.
0: Um, so the next room we like skip forward a few hundred years. Um, and we have uh, Zhang Da-chan
1: riffing off of Dunhuang, of all things. Right. So we've entered into the final section of the exhibition, and this is the most diffuse, the most abstract called Learning from the Past. And here I'm just highlighting the fact that so many Chinese painters uh, found their way forward through studying the past. And most of the exhibition, as the title indicates, is from pre-modern China, but we had uh, a concentration of works from both Zhang Chen and his friend and student, Xie Zhilio, that are from or just after from their time in Dunhuang or just after their time in Dunhuang that reflect the sort of unique type of learning from the past that they attempted to do up at this Buddhist cave oasis um, site in northwest China, Gansu province. And they went there from 1941 to 43 and spent their time just intensively studying this peerless collection of um, cave murals and cave art. That was made you know, between the fifth century and the thirteenth century, and you know it was so important to Zhang La and to Leo because they were from this group of people who were still very interested in old Chinese paintings, but they're living in a time when it starts to feel like maybe Chinese painting has run its course. And some very serious scholars and educators are saying, look we can't we can't paint paintings in response to the past anymore. this like Wang Hui, tradition of studying old masters, it has to go because it's not forward-looking, it's not modern, it's not scientific. And so what Zhang Dachan is is discovering in Dunhuang is something even older than the Wang Hui tradition, the Literati tradition that we've been talking about up until this point. It's old, it's ancient, it's Chinese, it's very interesting, and it hasn't been studied at all because it's basically been in these sealed up caves from the 13th century. Nobody knew about it. So he uh, studies these murals, he copies them, and he creates lots of new work in response. And that's what you'll see in this gallery are some figure paintings by Zhang Dachian's Shijir Leo made in response to what they saw at Dunhuang. And it wasn't just for them, like, they're not just doing archaeology. They're trying to make an argument for a new kind of painting that's both Chinese, has links to something ancient, but also is modern.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is like the it was another Wong who was in the. He was trying to do land reform, and everyone was like, "This is a bad idea." And then he finds something in like, uh, um, you know, like pre-Confucian texts that says, um, you know, in fact, like this is the traditional way of like taxing right. land. Um, and uh, I'm I'm embarrassed with my um uh, my, my lack of Song Dynasty history memory, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the the sort of like you know. Finding something really ancient to do something sort of modern and interesting and different is, yeah, I mean, people do it in the West too, right? With like, oh, yeah. um, the Renaissance. Of,
1: uh, you yeah. know, it's a classic move, right? Like yeah. everything that happened in the medieval period is garbage, but everything that happened in the Greek and Roman period, we can draw inspiration from that. Neo Confucianism, same deal. It's like the recent past is tainted and it's decadent. But there's some kernel in the distant past that we can go to, and that is absolutely the move that they're doing at Dunhuang, and it proves really productive. All right, so let's
0: um uh, let's take a little stroll into your final room, which has an absolute showstopper. Um, when you walk in from the Dunhuang room to to your right, uh, talk a little bit about this new painting.
1: Right, so this is the sort of finale of the exhibition. It's the finale of the um, learning from the past section, and this is a painting that is newly. Promised to the Metropolitan Museum and is sort of newly discovered in a sense because it's. What, what does promised mean? Oh, that so, seems like <laughs>
0: uh, you're a little worried. I don't
1: know. <laughs> uh, this is sort of a technical way of donating an artwork to a museum where you can sign a contract that says, um, I will give this artwork to the museum uh, before the time of my death, you know, heaven forbid. Or at the time of my death, it will become a bequest. Okay, and so it's a way for a collector and a donor to signal their intentions and to put them, you know, sort of carve them in stone, um, but to retain the artwork um, in their own possession, technically. This work has also become
0: okay, So, so you can't unpromise because you get the tax write-off, but it's still it's just just like it can be in your house until you say goodbye.
1: Promises are forever. Um, the you know, there's a whole story. You know, for any donors who want to hear about all the implications of how this works, you know, by all means, get in touch. Uh, you know how to find <laughs> Jordan. Um, but basically, yeah, it's a way of signaling one's intentions and allowing the museum to plan for the future while gotcha. also being able to retain this connection to the artwork. And um, yeah, then then when the artwork is the gift is formalized, uh, then we cross that bridge. This has also become a partial gift, and that's a whole other thing. But so it partially belongs to the Met, um, and the rest is promised, um, and that's sort of a theoretical distinction. But you'll see that on the label: partial and promised gift. Oh, what's what's partial? One can donate a partial a portion of the value of the artwork in any given year, and then continue to give it. Over time, until it completely belongs to the museum.
0: So that's like there's some tax reason for yeah, that. Exactly. Okay. Um, all right. Enough of that. Uh, this painting's super cool. Why?
1: So this, as a, as I was saying, this you know it's uh, it's by Wang Yuanqi, who's the grandson of Wang Shimin. We talked a lot about Wang Shimin and Wang Hui, and how Wang Shemin brought Wang Hui into his house and taught him from his collection. He also had in his house, as an elderly man, Wang Yuanqi, his very very gifted grandson and Wang Yuanqi was at the same time as Wang Kui studying Wang Shimin's collection and learning from the past and this painting is this tour de force exploration basically of everything that his grandfather taught him about the past he it's 17 inches tall which is very tall for a hand scroll and it's uh, 70 feet long which is makes it the grandest surviving hand scroll of Wang Yuanqi and one of the longest sort of grandest hand scrolls to survive from pre-modern China. It's, it's an outrageous scale for a hand scroll painting to be made in. And it is a single continuous coherent landscape, but throughout the landscape, the artist is cycling through different old master styles while maintaining the coherence of the landscape. So if you're thinking in terms of um, like uh, gymnastics speak, it's a very high start value routine uh, to be able to pull this off because the landscape absolutely coheres and um, the transitions from one style to the next are seamless. But he's giving you, in a sense, kind of his whole vision of Chinese painting history. But he doesn't go chronological and he doesn't go geographical. He kind of goes autobiographical. Like if you remember that scene from High Fidelity where the the main character is talking about how he organizes his records, he, it's all autobiographical. So he he needs to know where he acquired the record and when to know where to find it on the shelf. Similarly, Wang Yuanqi starts from the painter who was most important to his grandfather and who his grandfather started him on when he started to paint, who is Huang Gong Wang. Huang Gong Wang is a 14th-century painter and just beloved by Dong Qichang and his um, his student descendants. And so he starts with Huang Gong Wang and then he transitions into Nizan, another 14th-century painter, also beloved by Dong Qichang. And then back into Huang Gong Wang, and then a little more Huang Gong Wang, and then you get some Wu Zhen, another important 14th century painter. And, you know, there's a little bit of mixing and matching where it's hard to identify exactly who he's, whose style he's painting in. But then we seem to move back into 10th century styles, Dong Yuan, and um, then into Zhao Mengfu doing Dong Yuan and Juran. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's a very didactic scroll. It's a scroll that seems to be teaching somebody something and, um you know that may be a clue to uh what you know what it was for and the context in which it was made,
0: yeah, so he you know he was uh he was in the court, he was like kongshi was this big fan of this guy at this point, and i guess the uh the hypothesis is that this is sort of like a uh, here kongxi like weird mongolian guy um uh here is your um uh manchu manchu jesus um here here Kangxi, like you know uh manchu interlocutor here like learn all about our our majestic han um uh, han backstory um i do want to uh to just talk for one second about this like this like very weird part of the painting which is this sort of like marshy flat land bit um what's going on there
1: so re- remarkable section it's um i'll just note that it's on a uh, the shortest piece of paper in the scroll, and a and a separate piece of paper is almost t- entirely devoted to this section that depicts a broad level floodplain. It's lower than all the other mountain forms you're seeing and tree forms you're seeing. It has a, a lot of negative space, and it seems to depict kind of like a classic river village in Jiangnan, seen from an elevated perspective. And to me, this section was one of the most striking from the first moment I unrolled this scroll because it seems to it's the only part of the painting where I feel like it's responding directly to an old classical Chinese painting that existed uh, in Kangxi's collection at the time of Wang Yuanqi that still exists today. And that painting is Shui Cuntu, the, uh often translated as water village. I, I would translate it as river village. And it's by Zhao Mengfu, uh, made in the very first years of the 14th century, 1302-ish. And it's uh, one of the first explicitly antiquarian landscape paintings surviving from Chinese history. That is to say, Zhao Mengfu, we know that he was thinking of old landscape paintings when he made his new landscape painting, and that becomes the thing that everybody does from that point on. Um, Li Gonglin did it earlier in the Northern Song, but Zhao Mengfu is really starting to build a system around that type of painting. So, um, this particular painting was a bit of a hot topic in the Kangxi period. It was in the collection of a friend, of, a close friend of Kangxi named Nalan Xingde who passes away young in 1686. And then that year it goes into the imperial collection. And a lot of the Wang Yuanqi types who are in Beijing at the time, the Southern Han scholars who had studied that painting are looking around, they're like, where'd the painting go? Where is Shui Tsun Tu? Because they all loved it. And then later that year it shows up in Kangxi's collection and they see it there. And so Wang Yuanqi arrives a few years later, early 1690s, starts serving in the court. By the late 1690s, he's basically Kangxi's art curator. And so he would have known this painting very well. It's a celebrated painting. And um, here Wang Yuanqi appears to be responding directly to it in his own scroll. So, um,
0: you know, this whole idea of like art criticism, I mean... Well, first, like these painters, right? We talked earlier about how the painters are often copying like literal paintings that they are looking at. Um, um, but this is something that, uh, you know, art observers and art critics um, hundreds of years later, it's part of the game, right? Of like you look at a painting from one century and you try to figure out exactly what it was that this person was trying to, um, on, trying to sort of like learn, study from, emulate, you know, iterate on. And um, I just think like AI is going to really help with this and it's going to be really cool. You know, Joe, you were a little stressed that this is going to take your job, but as like a, I was amateur, thrilled.
1: It was going to take my job. I mean, I'm headed for the humble Villa. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be off in the mountains.
0: Just make sure you have a servant with you so you don't have to chop yeah, down exactly. your own trees. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know any other, um, uh, sort of reflections on, uh, uh, you know, since we last talked, like we now have mid journey, which is, which is an, an incredible, uh, uh, incredible new tool. Like what I am um, uh, uh what a i stuff are you are you excited about um and you know potential applications for uh studying and uh creating new landscape art?
1: you know it's funny I started in museums like i don't know I guess it's close to twenty years ago now, and I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna like do all this um I have all these new ideas for how museum practice can be done and um and I've done some of those, and I've probably fallen short on a lot of those but um strangely in my mid forties I find myself Uh, upholding some kind of maybe backward conservative (laughs) ideas about what it is that art history does best and what it is that museums do best because, you know, without the idea that there is a specific aura to the specific object that can only happen in encounter between the person and the object, we're shuttering the doors. And I actually don't think that's going to happen at all. And um, so as far as what AI can do to enhance the experiences of studying these artworks, And appreciation of these artworks. I find myself burying my head in the sand because, in some ways, my role as a still slightly, maybe let's say, mid career, youngish mid career scholar who really, really loves the smell of ink and the smell of the boxes and the paper. And if you can get close to the artwork, I love what that does. I'm out here advocating for that experience. Um, I'm using all the other stuff. But I'm actually um, I'm going to leave the kind of excitement behind all of that to other folks. And I'm going to stand here in my dusty boots and tell people to please come to the museum and please look at these paintings, because I think it's in the encounter uh, with the thing that uh, something's going to happen to you. This is
0: this is this is the problem with your exhibit, Joe, is the glass is too thick, so we can't smell what you can.
1: (laughs) We'll do we'll do smell a vision sometime and we'll pump in some scent.
0: Yeah, I mean one, maybe a, a few thoughts. Um, you know, as I have um, spent it spent, and you know, folks who read the newsletter at ChinaTalk Media um, will see me experimenting a lot with uh, sort of making illustrations that pair with the, um, uh, the 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 articles. And like the the best things that I come up with are when I walk around a museum and i see uh an artist who has like a new visual style or something that i I then use and i you know take a photo of something and then you can you can have a you can you don't have to just use words anymore with these programs like i literally upload a photo and then i do like i don't know some like 19th century watercolor and say like semiconductors and then it does like semiconductors in the style of this like one random watercolor person and it And it's been a really cool way to um, experience museums like entirely differently because, you know, like I can draw a little bit and I can paint a little bit. But but there are so many sort of visual styles of art that I'm just I'm never going to be able to do by myself Um, and, you know, sitting here and hanging out in the mat and like bringing my ink or, you know, bringing my my pencil and paper is it's. It's a radically different experience from all of a sudden being able to sort of like harness the um, the aesthetics of like everything humanity has ever created. And And it makes me so much more excited to show up to museums and like be exposed to new stuff because I can like all of a sudden do it. And like, yes, you know, that's that's very different from spending literally 80 years of your life so you can like finally paint a good tree. And like, I, I get that. I respect it. We've just done a whole show about it. But at the same time, um, it the, the sort of ability to allow more people who don't have the time or inclination um, to uh, devote their entire or, you know, like, uh, you know, fiscal wherewithal to, to devote their entire lives to um, um to making art has just been uh, really, really cool.
1: Well one I mean one thing I'll say is that you know like we live in 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 an era of existing IP right like you can't make entertainment unless the storyline is already pre-existing and I think that um that situates AI very well to entertain us in the future and to produce things that we can like because AI can consume all existing IP and then can give us things that we're going to respond to at least things that are on the same level and you know, the Chinese painting tradition, the Wang Hui tradition, the Dong Chichang tradition is very much a tradition built around existing IP, right? Like if they you're you're meant to bring to it the whole storyline of Nizan. You already yeah. know Nizan's origin story. So when you see Wang Hui doing a transformation and Dong Chichang doing a transformation of Nizan, um, it means something to you already. Like you have the backstory. And so, you know, if AI wants to attempt to say something um, in any art tradition, you know the literati, the Chinese literati painting tradition would be an interesting place to start because that business of consuming everything that existed before is something that Wang Yuanqi and Wang Hui and Dong Chang they all had to do as part of their learning process. So you know when Skynet starts to deliver Chinese paintings to us, um, you know just yeah, let me know. I mean
0: it doesn't it doesn't I, I, like. I'm almost more, I think I'm less interested in, well, I mean, the AI creating new art by blending different artists in in different ways will be very cool. But also just as a didactic tool of having, um, you know, having a Joe in your pocket of, um, and, and, you know, it's not just having a Joe in your pocket, it's having, you know, being able to put Joe to work to explain this particular painting that I am interested in at, you know, uh uh 958 in the morning on a Thursday mm-hmm. um and like being able to you know instantly sort of understand all of the connections and like see the five paintings which are which it's in reference to and speaking to i mean like yeah like look i you don't have to get a phd for that and there's probably some there's probably a lot that you get from you know spending hours and hours of doing that but maybe. like <laughs> maybe maybe not i don't know Could... but but you know this is this is a extremely inaccessible art form and um i think a new generation is going to need a lot of handholding because we're not literati anymore and um as cool as you might think this is there are only so many people who can devote um it, you know it's it's like it's really demanding and it's also just like um you know the entry barriers are are enormous and i think like using um like not handcrafted um, educational tools to ramp people up to really appreciate this stuff is going to be really, really cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, if it makes people fall in love with the paintings and and to find them to be accessible, I'm all for it. I think like with all technology, the trick for us is to don't get lost in the machine on your way to the artwork, right? If it drives us back to the artwork, then I'm, I'm all for it.
0: All right. So Biden, um, I know you're thinking about cutting off Chinese um, uh, uh, Chinese uh, companies' access to cloud compute. And like, I get it. I understand. You know, hypersonic weapons are scary. But like, just like make some carve outs for the um uh, for the really cool uh, literati painting models. I think I think we can all we can all get on board on that. um Joe Shire Dahlberg what a treat. Thank you so much for coming back to China talk.
1: Oh, Jordan, thanks so much. It's been really fun.